Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. When we look at high achievers, you'll often hear them talk about their perfectionism as being, you know, part of that driving force that moves them forward. And we think, okay, well, if perfectionists, if they're a perfectionist and they made it to the top, then that must mean that if uh, perfectionism is good, right? But as I mentioned, you know, that ignores the many hundreds of millions of people who also got perfectionistic tendencies, but didn't quite make it to the top, who are are pushing themselves, sacrificing themselves, encountering a lot of mental distress, um, you know, without the kind of commemorative plaque or the Grammy or the Olympic medal um, to show for it. This is, this is essentially what's called in the academic literature survivorship uh, bias. And I think if you really want to understand success, I think it's, it's important we, we don't just talk to the people that win, but you also talk to the people that didn't quite make it because their reasons for not quite making it are just as important if you want to understand success than the reasons that the people who did make it give us. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Thomas, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So you have a new book out called The Perfection Trap, which I found out about uh, through Wave Your Publicist, which I just finished reading this morning. And uh, you, know, given that, you know, from having read the book, I really see you as a social scientist. I wanted to start by asking you, what social group were you a part of in high school? And what impact did that end up having on where you've ended up with your life and career? Oh, gosh. My... <laughs> I grew up in a small town, so my uh, experiences at, at high school were very much rooted in the kind of humdrum of small town life. You know, we were um, kids of um, working people. So our parents would uh, do, well, my parents, for instance, were a receptionist. Uh, my mom was a receptionist, but dad was a construction worker. And that was kind of typical for um, the type of um, people at work that, that the parents of the kids that I used to hang around with used to do. and we. Uh, were very uh, rambunctious, I suppose you could say, uh, a little bit naughty. Um, we, uh, you know, because like it's just a small town life. It's kind of, you know, it's fun, but it's also there's not a great deal to do. So uh, I guess we, I would say that we weren't particularly academically ambitious, um, but we had we had fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, uh, it's it's been a kind of a roller coaster journey to where I am. Uh, a lot of luck along the way. A lot of hard work for sure. Um, and I, one of the great things about having that kind of upbringing, I think, is it does give you uh, a different perspective, uh, of, of the world, perhaps than most people in, in my orbit. Um, and I think that helped me kind of crystallize my ideas, um, particularly around the social, uh, forces that weigh on perfectionism. Um, and, and so I, I, you know, in some ways it was a disadvantage, but in other ways, I think it was also an advantage. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm so glad you brought up the, the social forces of perfectionism because I kind of wonder then, you know, how did somebody like you end up where you're at, given the environment that you were in, which you described as not particularly academically ambitious? Like, where did that come from? And what was the narrative about making your way in the world in this environment? 
the, th- the thing is like, is I'm just so lucky. I, you know, there's so many sliding doors moments in my life where I'd have ended up in a different place. You know, if you were to simulate my life a thousand times, I'd probably end up here in maybe one or two of those simulations, you know? Yeah. Like, it's so, so um, out of, uh, I guess, anyone's expectations. I mean, my, my, my parents, for instance, they just cannot believe I have this book out. Like, it's almost overwhelming that their son is, you know, is on TV, is doing these things on radio, he's writing this book. Like, this was stuff that you just never would have expected, and I never would have expected either. Um, you know, I've just hap- I, I think I, I've worked really hard. That's the first thing to say. And you can't do, you can't get here without working hard. So you have to, uh, you know, I'm very uh, clear about hard work being a very important part of success. But also, I've been so lucky too. You know, there's been so many moments uh, along the way, like a, uh, just just even like coming through at the right time. Uh, we came through when um, Tony Blair was leader of the. Uh, of the UK, uh, Prime Minister of the UK, and he had this big uh, education drive, just just like Obama did in in the US. So he, you know, you're pumping so much money into the education system so that kids like me were able to go to university. Well, you know what? If I'd come through the system three or four years later, that money was taken away, and I wouldn't be here. So you know, that's you know, that's just a small example, but there's so many other examples of that along the way, where you know, just meeting the right people at the right time, coming through the education system when people. On the university system, when professors who were interested in the area of like motivation and perfectionism were at the same place that I was, then, you know, getting selected to go to do a PhD and then from there doing my postdoc. And, and from the postdoc, I would say the journey got a lot smoother. So once you're in the system, yeah. you know, you can really focus and you can get to where you want to be. But getting into that position was a lot of hard work, but also a lot of luck. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm all too familiar with this. My dad's a college professor, so I, I, <laughs> I understand it. He just retired. He just retired after 30 years, but I've, I've lived what you're talking about. So one thing that I, I wonder, I mean, I, if I remember correctly, you mentioned that the town that you grew up in also has changed quite a bit over time, but, uh, I wonder how that environment influences people's sort of definition of, of, you know, what it means to be, have enough and then to strive for more because I feel like that's like an ongoing theme in the book and we'll get into the book, but I feel like that backdrop is really important uh, as far as shaping your perspective on this. Yeah, I think in those sort of communities growing up, I mean, I've always been an anxious kid. And so, you know, I write in the book about my own perfectionism because I think it's really uh, helped help me formulate my own ideas about what this concept of perfectionism is but I've always been an anxious kid so there's always I think there's always been a bit of perfectionism in there but it really wasn't until I got into the I guess you could call it in um, in quotes the middle class world you know the world of like hyper professional competence maximization um you know jostling competition to you know move ahead get get the credentials get the best posts get the best jobs in the best universities all of this kind of very hierarchical um, rat race. Uh, that was when that kind of in those kind of anxieties really started to be um, amplified and and have an impact on uh, on my life. Um, and so you know, it's really the kind of switching between the two worlds, which has give has given me a really, a, I guess, a really interesting and important insight into what perfectionism is and where it comes from. Because I still felt like even you know, growing up, you still feel those pressures. And even if they weren't academic pressures, you, you still feel like, you know, living in a consumer culture, people who have the best trainers, the best outfits, who have, could afford the best mobile phones and the latest gadgets, you know, that, that was a, you know, that was, um, a, that's still a form of perfectionism, you know, since they need to update and improve our lives all the time. And I felt, you know, intensely self-conscious about not having those things. So, you know, there's, it doesn't have to be like perfectionism that comes through like this kind of academic professional push, which we often associate perfectionism with, but actually perfectionism can come from just broader consumer culture and feeling like we don't have or possess enough. Um, and so, you know, these kind of experiences living through this world, observing this, these, um, these things and also introspecting on my feelings as a, a younger person, like growing up into the world which kind of projects at us all these ideals of who we should be, who we could be, what we, what we need to have, um, is, is really, was really like, I think gave me a really interesting and perhaps unique perspective, I guess, on perfectionism. 
Um, and as I say, it's kind of over the years I've kind of tried to look, take those experiences and, and, um, formalize them, so to speak, in a kind of, in a kind of perspective or a theory on what perfectionism is and importantly where perfectionism comes from. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, speaking of where it comes from, I want to bring back a clip from an old conversation I had with William Dershowitz because I was uh, looking through kind of our archives and I thought about this and I thought it would be very relevant to our conversation. Uh, take a listen. Where does self-worth come from? Ultimately, it comes from the feeling that your parents love you and that you're worthy of that love. So achievement becomes the prerequisite of self-worth. You can't just love yourself. Because your parents don't just love you. They love you because you get the A. So this creates a cycle. These parents may have grown up like this to begin with. Maybe they didn't. But then they parent this way. And it creates a cycle where you get that A and your parents approve of you. Your parents love you. And you get the A minus. And they're like, what happened to the other three points? And suddenly you're out in the outer darkness. And mommy and daddy don't love me. Now, by the time you get to high school, certainly college, but this can persist. You said 37. It can persist. I think you can persist your entire life. I know people like this. Mommy and daddy may no longer be a visible part of the equation, but you have a, a psyche that's structured as a kind of oscillation between what she, what the author, what she calls grandiosity, the feeling like you're the greatest person in the world, and abjection, the feeling that you're worthless. So. Let's talk about uh, parenting in the context of what you just heard as well as your own work, because I, I realized you know, that parents are probably one of the earliest influences we have. And I grew up in an Indian family, 
unlike your family, where we weren't, you know, academically ambitious, you, where you say you weren't, we were surrounded by nothing but academically ambitious people. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, that's so, so can I just say great, great conversation and a, and a lovely crystallization there of um, what's called conditionally regarding parenting in the sense that, you know, if we uh, hitch our regard, our love, affection for our offspring on their achievements, then that can impact on a sense of fragile and um, contingent self-esteem, contingent upon achievement, right? Like, you know, if we get an A, a perfect A, uh, we feel like we're worth something, but if we don't, then we feel like we've let other people down. And and what this can lead to is, a, is an overvaluation of the outcome, an overvaluation of the grade or the praise and an undervaluation of ourselves. And that psychology is crucial to understanding the, the development of perfectionism. And certainly, undoubtedly, that can come uh, through the intermittent response to our needs as, as young people. So that's to say parents intermittently giving praise and withholding praise when we haven't done something well. But I would also say it's not just parents. Parents, you know, um, I mean, it's good, good, good to be really, I'm trying to be in my book, I'm trying to like um, be as empathetic and compassionate as I can because I think in the modern world, we have to sort of push young people uh, we have to kind of withhold that kind of unqualified approval for their achievements. We have to keep them on tiptoes to a certain extent to keep doing more and achieving more because these things matter for their life chances. You know, back in the 60s, 70s, when the economy was growing at healthy rates, there was a burgeoning middle class. And when the American economy did well, the American people did well, you know, the the intense pressure on on people to to excel all the time was was not really there you know people carved out their own passions and did did things that they um that matched their skill sets and they were really were rewarded for that right the middle class was 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 very big and growing we don't live in that world anymore middle class is shrinking being hollowed out social mobility is in reverse and if you're a parent looking out into the world, you're going to have to push your kids because now they really need, they don't just need to excel in school. They need to excel in college and then they need to excel in their internships to excel in their jobs, which is ultimately what will allow them to live the type of lives that their parents live. Parents see that. They know that. And so these kind of ways and forms of parenting, you know, pushing young people to excel. Uh, un withholding unqualified approval on the uh, expectation of more. It's just a natural, inevitable, normal way to parent in today's uh, economy. However, we have to be aware that the the psychological implication of that type of parenting is perfectionism and perfectionistic beliefs about ourselves uh, and um, the way that we view ourselves in relation to other people and the way that we view ourselves in relation to our achievements. So, um, you know, these, the, there is definitely a connection, but I, but I don't think it's the parents' fault, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes complete sense. Well, so I want to do this kind of out of order, uh, just because you brought up education. I know that you are an educator, and you're also an educator at what is arguably an elite institution. And when you talk about the fact that education is this you know, massive gateway for us, and at the same time, you talk about this sort of grand narrative of meritocracy, which I think you and I both know it's not. No matter how you slice it, if we call our education system a meritocracy, we'd be lying to ourselves. Yeah, I mean, this is so this is one of the chapters in my book that I think is going to draw a lot of criticism as well as a lot of praise. It's going to polarize, essentially. But, you know, growing up in a poor, from a poor background gives you a certain a perspective on meritocracy that might clash with perhaps other people's perspectives. And that's because the, the problem with meritocracy is because a meritocracy is not in, in and of itself a bad thing. Where it becomes problematic is when you fuse meritocracy with inequality. Mm. And, and in, a, in a system like ours where inequality is at levels that we haven't seen, you know, since the Victorian era or the year, you know, we're almost going back to um, plutocratic times in terms of inequality in, in some Western nations. When you have such severe inequality and you have an, an economy in a society that lionizes 
uh, meritocracy, i.e. hard work, this kind of idea of the American dream. At some point, the two just are, there's going to be a massive disconnect. There's going to be a massive disconnect between what we're told, i.e. you live in a meritocracy, you can make it under your own steam, and our, our, the reality of our economic situation, which is essentially we're working our butts off, but we don't feel like we're being rewarded with the types of things that we're told we should be rewarded with. That's to say, you know, a good job, um, a career, uh, a, a home, uh, and a, a stable financial position from which we can raise a family. If you're a young person in this economy right now, working really hard, you're finding that you're unable to do those things. You can't buy a house. Your job is insecure and unstable. And in many cases, casualized. A lot of people now working in the gig economy. But if they're not working in the gig economy, they're freelance. So the, the sense of permanence is really, um, stability is, is, is low. Uh, houses are unaffordable. And that means that we're delaying adulthood uh, in order to find, you know, a period in our life where we're stable enough to be able to, have children and raise them. Um, so this is the, this is the issue. You know, when you fuse meritocracy, this kind of promise of the good life based on hard work with an economy that's not providing us with the basic necessities of life, certainly until we're far older than our parents, then you, then that's a, that's, you know, that's not a meritocracy anymore. Um, we, all we have really is inequality. Um, and, and I think that cycle, there's a, the psychological impact of that is is perfectionism is a sense that I have to do more I have to keep going I have to essentially sacrifice you know my current circumstances and well-being um just to have the same quality of life that my parents did well that's you know that's really hard for young people um and so that's one of the reasons I think that meritocracy um is having a major impact on young people's perfection yeah well you teach at the London School of Economics correct that's correct. And LSE is arguably one of the most elite institutions in the world. I only know this because I went to business school. Uh, so one, I wonder how you see this play out in students who are already part of a very high achieving group of people. Uh, but also with what you just said in mind about meritocracy and inequality, if you were tasked with redesigning the education system to address these issues of perfectionism, how would you change it? Yeah, so, I mean, th this, is why, this is why I brought up my background because, you know, I can... From this outpost as a prof at what's called a Russell Group Institution, so that's kind of the equivalent of the Ivy League in the in the US. Um, you know, I was really shocked by the level of tension, anxiety, worry that was presented to me among young people. They they are really bound with tension. They've they've come through a really grueling selection process in the school uh, in their schooling. Um, they've excelled. They've made it to the uh, to the very top, right? And now they find themselves in an elite institution, and they're competing amongst people right at the top end of the academic distribution. I mean, I mean, talk about a pressure cooker for these young people. And 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 they've been conditioned their whole lives to believe that you know meritocracy is akin to natural selection, and so and so really they you know they have this strong and burning desire to excel, to prove themselves, to work hard, to justify not just their place at university, but also the high and excessively high grades that they expect themselves to get much higher than other people and see very competitive tendencies among uh, students. Now that's having an impact. And we know that for all the data, if you look at all of the data in uh, American college campuses, particularly elite ones, Young people are really suffering. They're really struggling. Uh, Sonia Yulufar's work has shown that kids from more affluent backgrounds are struggling with mental health problems, um, in some cases, well in excess of, um, of kids further down the social strata, which is really surprising, but makes sense when you, when you think about the pressures that these young people um, are under. Co college campus data shows that young people are reporting levels of being overwhelmed that have just spiked in the last uh, 10 years. And, uh, you know, if you only have to, you only have to, you know, sit in your office and hold office hours every week to know that young people are, are really, really feeling the strain. And some of them, you know, I've seen students that can't even open their grade book because they worried about, um, the grade and how that's going to impact on their future. Um, so there's, there's a, there's a huge amount of tension, huge amount of pressure and like coming from a different world and then seeing this is like, whoa, 
Like even the people who win in a meritocracy lose because of the intense and unrelenting pressure that they're under just to sustain that level of excellence that they're expected um, to sustain. And, you know, I think at some point we have to ask ourselves, how much pressure is too much? Like at what point are we going to accept that the intense and unrelenting strain that we're putting young people under is breaking them? And so really, I think this, this really means we need to have a frank and honest conversation about our education system, about our broader um, society and how we want to, and how we want to organize. Because I think, you know, put it, and there's nothing wrong with a meritocracy, as I, as I mentioned, but a meritocracy fused to a high and growing inequality creates the, circ- the situation that we have today. I think we have to address inequality on the one hand. We have to bring our society back in line to where it was all throughout the 50s, 60s and 70s. Uh, and on top of that, we need to open up the education system. Education really is, you know, the... Um, the way that we get social m- mobility motoring in the country is the, is the, it is the escape hatch out of poverty, but we need to make it accessible to everyone. We need everybody to be able to access, uh, access a good quality education, which means funding our education system properly, which means training teachers adequately, um, and giving them the resources they need to be inspirational teachers. But also it means allowing young people to follow their own passions and pursue their own interests and not kind of force them into a very narrow set of elite professions like law, medicine, um, and finance. You know, all those things are important. If kids want to go into those professions, that's absolutely, that's absolutely fine. And no problem with that at all. But there are other things that are really important to society. You know, nursing, uh, for instance, uh, social workers, uh, psychologists, uh, builders, construction workers, plumbers, um, you know, you could, the list goes on. All of these things are equally important to society. And if that's what young people want to do, and that's their passion, we should allow them to follow that passion and also allow for their contributions to society through those passions to be rewarded um, in line with their contribution. And I think, you know, and addressing inequality will help that, but also properly resourcing our school system would also help that. Um, and I noted a couple of other things in the book around how schooling should work and the pressure I, you know, releasing pressure, you know, by reducing standardized testing, um, allowing students to play, create, and um, almost like you could just kind of finish education system, which really allows uh, young people, particularly early, early years um, to just play, create, and not worry about outcomes and testing uh, and all the rest of it. I think those things are also important. But, you know, at a broader, at a broader level, I really do think it's important we, we properly resource the education system and, and make sure that each child has an opportunity for a good yeah. education. Yeah, I, I appreciate that you brought up the, the sort of law medicine finance path. I was a Berkeley undergrad and it's kind of funny. Like I always tried to describe, I was like, what are the four paths out of Berkeley? It's law, medicine, finance, or, you know, go work at a company and get an MBA, which is like management consulting. And it's it always kind of stunned me that, you know, you get there and you have hundreds of options in front of you. And then somebody says, OK, these are the majors. And then like with each decision you make, your possibilities or at least your perceived possibilities for what you could do with your life become narrower and narrower until you literally are making a decision between four careers. Yeah, that, and that's that's that is unfortunately like today, if you want to have a good standard of living, those are the kind of four main professions. Maybe you can add tech into mm-hmm. into that uh cluster yeah but really those are your options <laughs> it's like you know if you want to move like uh, uh ascend into the middle and upper classes then you're really going to have to go into those professions because anything else isn't going to get you there and which is fine you know lots of people love doing those things and there's nothing wrong with that but other people who will have a skill set that's matched to doing other things you know some people are much more creative they work with their hands and they're very good at working with the hand but, you know, they might look at the pay and salaries that goes to, you know, construction workers, uh, people who, you know, carpenters, um, metal work, whatever it might be, you know, these kind of uh, traditional craftsman-like uh, professions and, and think, well, even though that's maybe matches my skill set and something that I really like and want to do, I'm not necessarily going to be able to live uh, at, at the standard of, you know, the standard of living that maybe my parents 
become accustomed to unless I move into another area and do something else. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really about kind of opening up, uh, the, uh, opening up people's options and, and make, and, and that come again, that comes back to inequality. Like if, if we, if we have a, a lopsided economy that provides all of the resources and rewards to a very narrow set of professions, uh, then of course you're going to get people funneling into those professions. But if you're able to, if you're able to kind of provide a, a, a broader middle class, then there's going to be a lot more work and a lot more money and a lot more remuneration for a much broader repertoire of uh, skills and passions. So it, it comes down to inequality, essentially. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the three different types of perfection that you wrote about, uh, self-oriented perfectionism, socially prescribed perfectionism, and other-oriented perfectionism. Can you define those and talk about the causes and sort of some of the modern causes of them, particularly let's you know talk about social media as well? Okay. So we'll start with, with the types of perfectionism. So there are three types of perfectionism. And in many, many decades of work, uh, clinicians and researchers have taught to perfectionistic people. And they've arrived at these kind of three core elements. Now, what you, we think about when we think about perfectionism is this kind of self-set, high goals, high self-expectations. Um, you know, it's kind of inner drive, I suppose, to be perfect. Now, that's one form of perfectionism, and it's called self-oriented perfectionism. So self-oriented perfectionists are really or come like quintessential overstrivers, and they can be very self-critical when they haven't met their excessively high standards. But we know perfectionism is way more than just that kind of inner drive. We, and we know it's way more because when you talk to perfectionistic people, they'll tell you that it isn't just perfectionism coming from within, but there's also social elements that are important. And one of those social elements is the perception that other people expect me to be perfect. So you'll see perfectionist people tell you a lot that, you know, out there in the big wide world, there are people watching me and they're waiting to pounce on any mistake or shortcoming that I might, you know, encounter or, or make. And so that element of perfection is called socially prescribed perfectionism, kind of the sense that you know, everyone and all around me expects me to be perfect. And then there's perfectionism turned outwards onto other people. So perfectionistic people won't just have this kind of high inner drive to be perfect. They won't just feel that other people expect them to be perfect, but they'll also turn those expectations outwards onto other people. So if there's a, if someone in your social environment or in your team at work has done a substandard performance, for instance, well, you're going to let them know that that's just not good enough. And so the other-oriented perfectionist is someone that is has high standards for other people and can be quite punitive when they haven't met those high standards. And so those are kind of the four core elements of perfectionism that we know exist within um, perfectionistic people, and they can exist to varying degrees. Some people can be high and self-oriented and maybe lower and other-oriented. Some people can be high other and low and self. Some people can be high and social, et cetera, et cetera. We measure them on a spectrum um, that runs between one and seven because we measure them on a paper and pencil questionnaire. And everybody has their own sort of constellation. And that's also one of the most interesting things about perfectionism that, you know, no one size fits all. Uh, different perfectionistic people have, have, have uh, different perfectionistic traits. And so those are the kind of core elements of perfectionism. And we've studied this now for about 35 years. And what we're finding is that all three of these elements of perfectionism are rising. So that's to say more people are, are, are scoring higher on the, on, the, on the spectrums of each of these elements. But it's socially prescribed perfectionism which is rising at the fastest rate, uh, about 40% increase since 1989. And the reason that that's happening, we think, is many different reasons, but social media almost certainly is having a huge impact on those social expectations for perfection. So, you know, the kind of 24-7 bombardment of images of perfect lives and lifestyles is creating a sense that everyone and all around me is perfect. And that therefore I must be perfect too. But it's not just social media that's amplifying those perceptions. We've just talked about the education system and how, how unrelenting it can be. The workplace is extremely tough right now uh, as it's become more insecure. This idea of hustling, grinding has become an important part of our kind of working identities. And that's undoubtedly weighing on our perfectionism and also parental change in parental practices too. Um, about, you know, around having high and excessive expectations for young people, because those things are really, really important uh, when it comes to their life chances. 
So socially prescribed perfectionism is the one we're really worried about. And there are many, there are many reasons why it's rising. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, well, let's talk about the reasons, you know, why it's rising. You pointed out to some of them, but I think the other thing that really struck me most was that the link between these perfectionist tendencies and achievement uh, is actually sort of inverse, uh, which I think a lot of people probably get a bit of a rude awakening, realizing they've worked themselves to the bone only to realize it doesn't help them accomplish the thing they thought it would. Yeah, that's the most fascinating thing about perfectionism. So when we, we, um, so one of the things that, and even we believe this. So one of the things that most people think is, okay, well, we know that perfectionism has impacts on our mental health. Uh, we, we know that. But at the same time, surely, you know, all the drive and excessive standards that perfectionist people place themselves under are going to give us some kind of success. They're going to make us more likely to succeed. Um, and we thought that too. But when you, when you actually look at the data, what's remarkable is that the relationship between perfection and performance is really weak. Um, and in some cases non-existent and that kind of perplexed us. And so we, we, we needed to un unpack that a little bit. Why is that happening? And, and we arrived at two, um, theories. Now the first theory is, uh, rooted in a sense that essentially or rooted in the idea that perfectionism 
does indeed push us to 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 work, but it's 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 to work too hard. And so what essentially we're doing is we're pushing us to the point of, you know, optimal performance, but then we're not stopping there. <laughs> Keep going. And we work harder and each and each, you know, unit of return to our um, additional effort that we put in becomes diminishing. And then we reach a point where actually now every additional unit of effort that we put into our work is now creating inverse returns because we're tired. We've sacrificed areas of our lives that are rejuvenating, like exercise, good diet, time with friends. And essentially what we're doing is we're just burning out. And we know that burnout is not at all conducive to performance. That's the first reason we think perfectionism is a weak relationship performance. But there's another more interesting reason. And the, the second reason is that perfectionistic people, yes, they do work hard. So if we put perfectionist people in the lab, right, and we say, here's a task. So we use sport because sport's a really interesting uh, microcosm of a sort of you know, competitive life um, in the modern economy. Um, and uh, we set them a task. We say, okay, you've got to cover a certain amount of distance in a certain amount of time. And we say, away you go. You'll see perfectionistic people work so hard to, to meet that goal, you know, because they really want to achieve. And then if you say to them at the end of all that effort, oh no, unfortunately you failed, like you didn't meet it. So no matter how hard they worked, you didn't achieve the goal. Their response to that will be high levels of shame, high levels of guilt, high levels of embarrassment, because essentially, you know, they've exposed some inner weakness that they're trying to conceal, right? That's bad enough. But then if you say, okay, have another go, they do something really interesting. So on the second attempt after the first failure, their effort will drop off a cliff. Right, they just won't try the second time round. Whereas non-perfectionistic people, what they tend to do, if you tell them they fail and then ask them to do it again, well, they just maintain their effort. In some cases, it even increases. Perfectionistic people just kind of withhold, they withdraw because in their mind, you can't fail at something that you didn't try at. And what they're doing here is kind of a, a, a self-preservation. They know the intense emotions of failure. They know how hard they are and how intense they are and so they don't want to they'll do anything they can to avoid them so they just withhold now complete avoidance you tend to see in perfectionistic people a lot but often it's the case that you can't withdraw yourself from activities particularly if you work you know as bosses to please deadlines to meet so they do the next best thing which is procrastinate and so they put off things they um, they do a, you know they take take breaks they go on the Netflix binge they scroll through social media, whatever it might be, to avoid the intense emotions that are associated with doing something complex, with doing something difficult. Until, of course, you know, the passage of time forces them into action, in which case the work's coming in late, it's getting sloppy, um, and it wasn't as good a quality as it would have been if we'd been able to apply ourselves um, uh, across, the, you know, uh, it give us more time to apply ourselves properly to the task. So, Yes, perfectionists burn out, and that's why they don't perform, but they also engage in self-sabotaging behaviors like avoidance and procrastination, which also impacts on their performances. So it's all pain, that's to say a lot of mental distress, for no gain. Um, and that's probably the biggest, um, I guess, take-home message, really, from my book. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the role of aspirational media, because one of the things that you say is that we're bombarded with self-made can-do fantasies in which we're told we should endure, even embrace struggle and strife. If we're going to succeed, visit any bookstore and browse the self-help section. You'll find hundreds of titles promising to give you the power of positive thinking or make you more resilient. Life coaches fill social media platforms with the same messaging. Wake up, it's time to grind, push through the pain. Nothing worth having comes easy. And the reason that that in particular caught my attention was because I produce aspirational media for a living. Uh, and to the point where I had a listener, and I, I've shared this before, who actually emailed me once. And I actually empathized with him. He said, you know, I have to, I've had to stop listening to your show because the people are amazing and they all make me feel worthless about my life. And I was like, yeah, I can relate. And I remember my mentor had told me once, he said, your bar for what success looks like is so wildly skewed because you see the world through the lens of outliers, the people that you interview. Um, so talk to me about the role of like this whole sort of, you know, self-help, we can all do anything culture uh, when it comes to this. Yeah, I mean, it's very, in, in like, so 
in modern in the modern world, like you'll be bombarded with this sort of stuff all the time. Um, and you see a lot of it in the kind of motivational um, corners of Instagram or YouTube, where there's a kind of lionization, a celebration of the unicorn achiever. And you'll get a lot of podcasts that will have these kind of really high achieving CEOs or athletes or creatives who, you know, are basically discussing, you know, what, what their secret sources uh, to success. Um, now, the, the problem with that is that this is a very highly selective sample. That's to say, these are people that have made it through some kind of selection process. And the things that they're advocating are really the things that millions and millions and millions of other people have done. But for some reason, they didn't make it past that selection process. Yeah. You know, that could be because, you know, they were just unfortunate that the, the brakes didn't break for them at the right time. It might be because they were, they had uh, a health uh, event that meant they couldn't continue in a certain career that might be a period of grief and stress that really set them back it could be just you know born into the wrong community or the wrong uh, or go or went to the wrong school you know there's all sorts of factors outside of the individual that mean even if we do all the things that we're told we should do to maximize uh, and you know to optimal performance marginal gains all of these sorts of things we can do all of them and still not not make it through factors that are no fault of our own. You know, that's just that's just fate. <laughs> and fate's nothing personal. But by putting these people on a pedestal and listening to their experiences, we kind of make it personal. Because what we're saying is that, well, if you, if you did all these things and you still didn't make it, then that's your fault. That, you know, for some reason there's something deficient or... um or, uh, or, uh, uh, of, of, uh, you know, there's something about you that meant that you didn't make it over the line. And that is a really difficult message. And I think that's the message that perhaps is being echoed by, um, your, your listener there. And, and I'm, I'm trying, you know, what I'm trying to say in the book is that, that kind of applicable to perfectionism too, because I think one of the reasons why we think perfectionism is the secret to success, even though, as I've just explained, it isn't is because when we look at high achievers, you'll often hear them talk about their perfectionism as being, you know, part of that driving force that moves them forward. And we think, okay, well, if perfectionists, if they're a perfectionist and they made it to the top, then that must mean that if uh, perfectionism is good, right? But as I mentioned, you know, that ignores the many hundreds of millions of people who also got perfectionistic tendencies, but yeah. didn't quite make it to the top, who are, who are pushing themselves, sacrificing themselves, encountering a lot of mental distress, um, you know, without the kind of commemorative plaque or the Grammy or the Olympic medal um, to show for it. This is this is essentially what's called in the academic literature survivorship yeah. um, bias. And I think if you really want to understand success, I think it's, it's important we, we don't just talk to the people that win, but you also talk to the people that didn't quite make it because their reasons for not quite making it are just as important if you want to understand success than the reasons that the people who did make it give us. So, you know, there's an idea for a podcast. <laughs> well, I, I, there's I, the people that didn't quite make it, because I think we would get a better, a more rounded uh, um, idea of what high performance looks like. Yeah, I mean, if I were to sum up what you just said in a blog post, it would be that survivorship bias makes us blind to context. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that that's so overlooked in all self-improvement. Like I always, you know, I always tell people when I, I've had people come and, you know, ask me to coach them on things. So I'm like, look, I need to preface this by telling you that everything I'm telling you might be bullshit because it's very well in the possibility of your life. Like you can't take anything as, as gospel. And, you know, I think that we like to basically formulize, you know, prescriptive advice and we overlook the one variable that throws all of it, all of it off, which is us. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, like, you know, a lot of this information that these people give us is really useful. You know, I, I, I am a big advocate of hard work because hard work has propelled me to where I am. Don't get me wrong, you know, all of these things are important. But that would be an incomplete picture of why I am where I am if I just was to focus on what I did myself, because it would discount all the factors beyond my control, which also led me to where I am. And without those two, you know, you, you know, without the, without the outside forces, the inside forces don't, don't get me there. 
Can you see what I'm saying? So like, you know, we have to consider context, exactly what you said, uh, when we're trying to understand success, because it's super, super important. Um, and often we don't necessarily caveat those anecdotes with that kind of disclaimer, you know, but there are also factors here. Yeah. Well, one of the things that you say is the very fabric of modern society is woven from our discontent, magnifying the many imperfections that advertisers have manufactured into existence is how we've always kept in an always expanding state of supercharged consumption and how by extension our economy is kept in an always expanding state of supercharged growth. And I read that. And so I started, I've been working on this uh, book for my nine month old nephew, which is basically a life advice book that he's the only person I'll ever read. And, you know, I'm going to give it to him when he's 18. But after reading that, I said, you know, you're surrounded by all these wildly ambitious people. And one of the hidden dangers of this is something called the disease of more. And it's not something any doctor can diagnose you with. But there's a point at which the diminishing returns of relentless ambition kick in. And what nobody tells you about this disease, that if you measure your life with the metric of more, you'll never feel like you have do and most importantly are enough. Um, you know, and that was kind of my take from what you said there. But with this incredibly powerful and influential media backdrop that is effectively just playing on, you know, repeat on a loop in our lives, how do you overcome that? Well, that's the, that's the thing. I mean, you're absolutely right. The disease of more is is a, is is pervasive right now, and it it you know, I think one of the, as writing the book is writing the book can be really clarifying because I kind of had these ideas tossing around in my mind about you know how we live in this world that always demands of us something extra all the time that no matter where we are in life we have to continually trade our present happiness for the promise of something else, something more. There's always another product to buy, productivity hack to discover, um, a self-improvement project to embark on. And then finally, we will feel happy, content. But it never happens because if it were to happen, if everybody found the secret to inner contentment and happiness, then the whole economy breaks down. <laughs> Like the implications would be catastrophic. If we stop consuming, if we work a little bit less because we're happy in, in, in our lives being good enough, then that means businesses close, jobs are lost, and there's a recession. And we know what happens when we, when we enter into a recession. So, you know, as I began thinking about these concepts, it became evident to me. So, you know, it was kind of an epiphany moment, almost quite profound that actually, you know, this economy requires us to exist in a state of quasi-discontent because if we, if we didn't, it simply wouldn't work uh, and we would find ourselves in significant problems and significant struggles. And that, for me, was, um, one of, for me is one of the driving... If you want to really get into the, the root of the social um, forces that are weighing on perfectionism. That is one of, that is probably the biggest one, the sense that we must always be searching and desiring for more because we live in an economy that needs us to do those things. Um, now your, your question is, how do you, how do you, how well, do you yeah, escape now, that? now I'm, now I'm thinking to myself, I was like, okay, well, you teach at the London School of Economics. Like how that's such a, like, has anybody coined a name for this paradox? And if so, like, how do you redesign an entire economy to, to address this issue? If the economy would fall apart, you know, that's not a good thing either. No, exactly. But, you know, I'm not the first to kind of wrestle with these things. This has been, you know, a massive uh, intellectual discussion throughout the ages and um, particularly in, you know, modern post-industrial capitalist societies. Many people write about this, including, by the way, uh, Karen Horney, um, wrestling with these issues. So, you know, this is nothing new, but I suppose what is new is, is how omnipresent those forces are in our lives, particularly the advent of social media. Now, you know, look, I, I think first of first and foremost, if we can recognize that, that's the most important first step. Just to be able to gain awareness that actually, you know what, this isn't our fault, right? The way that we feel in terms of our sense of needing to do more, our sense of lack, our sense of deficit is culturally conditioned and conditioned by forces far from us and far from our control is actually a really liberating epiphany because it takes a lot of personal strain 
for the way that uh, for our inattentions. That's to say, you know, this idea, why can't I snap out of this? Why do I always feel like this? Why is it that I try and do all these, you know, self-help, uh, positive thinking, life hacks, and yet I'm still feeling this way? Well, it's because you're supposed to feel this way. And that's okay. Like, it isn't your fault that this is the economy and society that you live in. And just gaining awareness of that and releasing that pressure, I think, is extremely, extremely liberating just in, in and of itself, right? And then beyond that, once we've recognized that these forces uh, exist and we've recognized them and we can see them, then we can try to navigate life in a way that allows us to separate ourselves from, the relent- from that kind of relentless grind for more, to accept that actually it's okay if we slow down, right? Actually, it's okay if... Um, we don't need to continually update our lives and lifestyles all the time. Look, okay, you know, it's great to have have something new. So we, I like to buy the latest gadgets as much as everyone else does. But you know, do I need to spend my whole life uh, trying to update my life and lifestyle in relation to other people in the search and quest for status and uh, a sense of you know um, social superiority? Absolutely not. And these things are kind of you know we're kind of told we should. But these are the things I think we need to try to, if we possibly can, uh, release. Um, self-compassion, I think, is also important in this context. You know, what we're often told, you know, we must go in on ourselves if we don't appear perfect or we don't, or we don't have the same type of life or lifestyle as other people. You know, we need to blame ourselves and try to do more. Well, being kind to ourselves is, a, is like taking a sledgehammer to perfectionism. Uh, it's something that's very uncomfortable in this culture, but nevertheless, so, so important. So whenever we hit setbacks, whenever we feel a little bit less than than other people, it's really important to take ourselves aside, look at how much we've achieved, look at where we've come and be kind to ourselves. Choose kindness over um, self-castigation. So I think, you know, there are certain things we can do. There are other things I've talked about in the book around self-acceptance and embracing failure and embracing vulnerability that I think are also uh, really, really important. But Really, for me, it's this acknowledgement that actually, no, this isn't our fault. There's a broader context, which I think is really liberating. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I had Ryan Holiday here. And, you know, I think that Ryan at this point, you know, arguably is one of the most successful writers uh, of his generation. And uh, I think that there was something he said to me in our conversation that really struck me uh, about achievement. And he told me, he said, you know, he, he said, you think that people would look at my life and that I wake up, you know, every single day and, you know, I'm, I'm happy and I've gotten to, you know, have basically this career that most people could only dream of. And he said, but the thing is, he said, nobody ever actually does that. He said, because he said, basically, you start out with, you know, this idea that, OK, you know, what's going to make me feel like enough is basically that I've, you know hit a home run. And he's like, no, then this is how he summed it up. He's like, they make it to first base, they hit a single and they go, that was great. But like hitting a home run, that's what it is. Then they hit a home run and they say, no, it's a grand slam. And it's like, no, it's a grand slam in the World Series. And basically, then it's like the biggest contract in baseball. And what he said is he's you can see how this belief drives a lot of accomplishment, because if instead of ever being happy, people keep going. And he said, if this didn't happen, Elon Musk would have stopped at PayPal and we wouldn't have Tesla. And so he said the thing that I think struck me most was that it's good in the aggregate because it drives a lot of achievement. But on the individual level, the truth is that it's a lie because you're sold this idea that just on the other side of this hill, your happiness will finally be given to you. And what you're trying to do is fix an internal problem with an external accomplishment. Yeah, and and I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think there's a lot of truth that on the individual level that, you know, this this is really damaging uh, psychologically. In the aggregate, with everybody working and consuming at these frantic levels, that we have a growing economy that provides jobs and lifts standard of living. Yeah, I don't. I, you know, I think that's you know that's absolutely correct. What I would say though is we have to we have to under, we have to reckon with something really important, and that's that our understanding of how economies work is is fine. This idea that it has to grow all the time is fine. And clearly, it's taken industrialized economies, you know, from, from you know, so, so far, and quality of life and standard of life so far that now we live in an era of abundance that we've kind of solved the scarcity problem that a lot of sort of developing countries are still wrestling with. We, we've solved that problem, and so I guess the dilemma for us is 
well, okay, how do we land the plane? You know, we, is, is, is it the case that we're going to have to continue indefinitely expanding our economy just to maintain the standard of living that we already have? And, and at what point are we going to accept that, you know, we have an economy that's large enough, that's strong enough, that's stable enough, that provides a, a, a degree of abundance that, that means that everybody has a good enough quality of life and that we can, we can work in, in a, in a kind of almost a stasis. As I say, we can, we can enjoy the abundance that we've accrued through all of, all of those collective efforts to bring us to this, uh, to this, to this point in time. And that's a big thing to wrestle with, not just for our own lives and to find, you know, that, you know, our generation, future generations can enjoy that abundance, i.e. that we can actually enjoy free time, technological innovation and all of the, um, and all of the goodies that come with it. How, you know, how do we find a place where we can, you know, we can be content with that? Not just for ourselves, right? Because, you know, we, we clearly, our mental health struggles are on the rise and they're linked to, you know, this kind of desire and need for more, but also for the planet. You know, we can't indefinitely expand our economy without also pushing through ecological boundaries that mean we're going to hasten the impact of climate change. So whilst I agree a hundred percent that in the aggregate, these kind of perfectionist beliefs have pushed our economy forward. I think it's, we are going to have to sooner rather than later wrestle with the growth problem and ask ourselves how we can live inside an economy that doesn't need to grow all the time, not just for our own welfare, but also for the planet's welfare. That is a, such an important problem that we need to grasp. And by the way, we're not going to do it through renewable sources of energy only. We're going to need to work out how we can live inside economies that have low or even no growth and we can live contentedly inside them. Um, and so, yes, it is true, but I think we need to start to think about how we can move towards a good enough uh, standard of life and that means a good enough economy. I don't profess to have the answers, but I think it is a problem we need to wrestle with. Well, I think that makes such a uh, thought-provoking and beautiful way to wrap up our conversation. I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Somebody or something unmistakable? Oh, goodness me, that's a really um, good question. I think it's what makes somebody unmistakable, in, particularly nowadays, is an ability to just accept themselves for who they are and be able to uh, live life contentedly not needing to prove themselves or please other people these people are really rare in modern society but when you glimpse at somebody when you meet somebody who's able to do that it's it's so liberating because the kind of spontaneous joy that they ex that, that exudes from them from just being able to live inside themselves of all of themselves and all of their feelings is uh, so powerful and actually, I'm very jealous of those sorts of people. Um, and so, though, you know, those are people who uh, are unmistakable to me. I've met a few of them in my lifetime, and I've always been, I've always been very envious, and I've always gravitated um, towards them. And and it's certainly a way of life that I myself am striving for. Beautiful. Well, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, the book, your work, and everything that you're up to? Okay, so my website is uh, tomcurran.com. Tom spelled T-H-O-M, Curran spelled C-W-R-A-N.com. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn at tom-curran or Twitter on tom underscore curran. Beautiful. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.